most of you will know that our dog Kezia, our Labrador, has no tail. It all happened uh, one Tuesday night a couple of years ago. Judy and I had gone to the, to the prayer meeting and somehow we managed to leave the front door ajar. And Kezia uh, decided to go for a walk. She wandered up onto the Ifley Road, probably looking for us, and she was hit by a car. She's lucky to be alive. And I thought about that incident this week as I reflected upon the church in Corinth. Um, We've been studying the the whole of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 over the previous weeks and we have have seen that uh, the Apostle Paul speaks a lot about freedom, about Christian freedom. He keeps coming back to this, this theme. But actually, as we've examined it, the freedom, freedom uh, uh, regarding money, freedom regarding idol temples that there were in Corinth and so on, as we have examined those freedoms, I wouldn't blame you for thinking it looks, doesn't look like, much like freedom to me. Because frankly, every time that Paul starts talking about freedom, he says, but there is something deeper that I need to take seriously, whereby I, I voluntarily restrict and restrain my freedom in the fullest sense of the word for these other reasons. And as I was meditating on that, our dog came into our mind. Because uh, so when she was, well, let's be honest, now as well, um, uh, she is irresponsible. And um, because she is irresponsible, she has to have restraints. We as responsible owners um, have, uh, should have closed the door and stopped her going up onto the, uh, 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 onto the road. If you try to exercise freedom without maturity, without responsibility, it leads to calamity. If I try to exercise freedom to drive my car wherever I like, I will have a crash. If I give little children the freedom to play however they like by a a frozen lake, there will be a disaster. So freedom is one of those, those elusive things. If we pursue it with a sort of total, thoughtless, single-mindedness, we end up being more restricted. Kezia lost her tail. She also fractured her pelvis. She has somewhat restricted movement and will do for the rest of her life. Because she exercised her freedom in an irresponsible way. What the Apostle Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 is trying to help these Corinthians 
yes, to exercise their freedom, but to exercise it in a, in a responsible way, in fact, which keeps them free. And the final uh, um, bit of this passage is in some ways a bit bitty and it alludes back to lots of previous discussions that he's had previously in 1 Corinthians 8-10. to So, an apologies then if you haven't been with us and uh, some of those allusions um, take a little bit of catching up with. But overall, what he's doing at the end of this discussion of freedom is he's bringing together his discussion and highlighting a few simple, straightforward principles. Fundamentally, he is going to say, you are free, I want you to live like this so that you stay free. So let's, uh, let's look at that. Christians, he says, first of all, are free. Everything is permissible. Everything is permissible, he says, in verse uh, 23. In chapter, in, in, back in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he insisted that they, they are free from having to worry about all those idols in the temples in Corinth. They don't need to worry about them. Idols are nothing, he says. You can walk into their temple if you like. You can sit and have a meal there if you like. You can do anything you like. Jesus is Lord of all and those idols are absolutely powerful, powerless. You do not need to worry about them. You are free from their influence and their fear. Or in chapter 9, he was talking about the Christian's freedom for legitimate, to seek legitimate financial reward for their work, especially gospel workers. And he says, absolutely, um, uh, gospel workers in particular have the right, they are free to claim um, uh, financial reward. Or uh, um, in the latter part of chapter 9, he was talking about uh, the right to choose a particular lifestyle. Absolutely we are right to choose whatever lifestyle we like, he says, but that is qualified in certain ways, as we'll see in a minute. Everything, though, is permissible. He's no doubt quoting from the Corinthians when, um, when he says that, from the false teachers, but he's agreeing with it up to a point. Everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. Christian, you are free, he's saying. Free, actually, in more ways than he's immediately talked about. Free, he will make plain, for instance, elsewhere in his writings, from the endless rules and restrictions of the Old Testament. Paul describes, actually, the Old Testament lifestyle as being a child-like lifestyle. There are restrictions. Doors need to be closed. Children need to be restrained from going on frozen lakes when they're small and irresponsible. But the Apostle Paul says, actually, when you grew up, when Christ came, there is now a new freedom, an adult freedom, to enjoy serving God. We are free from those old restrictions and free, he says, in, in much more profound ways. Free from the fear of sin and the guilt of sin because Jesus died for all your sins. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. More than that, he says, you're free even from the fear of death 
because there is nothing, not even death, that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The New Testament and the Apostle Paul in particular says we are radically, radically free. And then he, so what he adds is really, really important. <clears throat> so he says, use that freedom well. Everything is permissible, he says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. <clears throat> now, I put so in that title, whereas uh, Paul put but uh, in that title, to make, make something really crystal clear. This is not a small print taking away of your freedom. This is not actually saying on the one hand you can do anything you like and on the other hand saying actually there's this long list of laws that you must, uh, uh, you must obey. He's not saying that. He is saying you are grown up, responsible, free people do not live like a child. Learn to live in a way that keeps you free. Not everything he says is beneficial. Not everything leads to benefit. Not everything is constructive. Not, en- not everything builds you and others up. Before a child can leave home and live independently, they must learn how to live free. And that's what he's that's what he's been teaching us. And that's what he's bringing together now in uh, uh, these last few verses. Here are some principles that he brings out. First is this: think. Therefore, verse 14, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. In Corinth, as we've seen uh, on previous weeks, there were all different kinds of idols in, uh, in temples and, and uh, the, the, the Christians were very divided over whether you could go into those temples or not. And in chapter 8, as we've already seen, he says, in one sense, in principle, you can go in absolutely. Now, some people say he's contradicting himself here when he says, flee from idolatry. But we don't need to read this as a flat contradiction. Rather, we need to to see that he's saying there are subtleties here for you Corinthian Christians. That's why I think he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves. He says, I'm making this point to people who can think it through, who can make good judgments. I want you to think, he says. And then the thing that he points out in these verses is, is, is this. He says, there's nothing wrong with idolatry in, in principle, or with, with, with nothing worrying about those idols in those temples in principle. But actually, the practices that went on in those ancient temples were designed to capture hearts. In fact, what went on in those temples had a very interesting parable 
in Christian life. Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of one loaf. He's appealing to the communion service and he's saying, actually, when you drink that wine, when you eat that bread, he says, that's given to you by God because that physical act of doing that, that does something in our souls. It reinforces, it confirms our relationship with Christ. There is a reason why Christians are called regularly to take bread and wine in remembrance of Jesus. It's, it's a physical action that for believers sort of binds them more strongly to Jesus. Indeed, he says, it's a physical action that binds them together as one people. They share one loaf, he says. And the very act, the physical act of eating bread from one loaf not only symbolises something, it, it establishes something amongst us. We partake together, he says. Now, if human beings are like that, he's saying, do you think they suddenly become not like that when they go and eat, a, eat, eat uh, at a, an idol's temple? No, he's saying. Those feasts in those idols' temples, they're designed to play with our hearts. Verse 19, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, no, that's not the point. Trivial in one sense. But, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do want you to be participants, that's the word again, with demons. Don't mess around with these things, he says. The pagans in their temples, they know what they are doing. They want your heart. They, they, the whole system is to bind you in your heart to these false gods with all their allurement and all their fear associated with them. And what's that got to to do with us. Well, the Bible says very, very clearly idols are not just found in ancient temples of little shrines with wooden models. Absolutely anything in this world, if it is worshipped rather than, than enjoyed as a gift of God, can become an idol to us. And we should not be naive at the way that this world wants us to turn from worshipping God to worshipping one of those other things. Look at, look at, look at car adverts, for instance. Now, the whole advertising industry is finely tuned to capturing hearts. And the, the images of uh, sleek cars and wide open freedom and Pretty girls is just very attractive for men. They know what they're doing. They want to capture our hearts. And so on. You could just go, go through advert after advert 
They're not helpfully informing you particularly of something that uh, would be of great benefit to you. They are wanting to capture our hearts. And it's not just the advertising industry. We we do it in ourselves without needing any great help from other people. We, we, We long for that. A bit more money. A slightly better house. A more prestigious job. We, we idolise the future of the perfect life partner who's just around the corner for us. And so on and so on and so on. Think, says Paul. Yeah, you can use any of these things. You don't need to run away from them with paranoia. But do not be Naive about the way that they capture hearts. They want to bind you to themselves, these things. Back in 1 Corinthians 7, verse verse 31, the Apostle said, Use the things of this world as not engrossed in them. That's the way. Not engrossed, not obsessed. Not with our hearts captured by them. Think, he says. Your freedom depends on it. Now, I don't know what's, what's in your heart. I don't know what it is that's, that's in danger of, 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 of drawing you astray. Maybe it's academic achievement. Maybe, it, maybe it's money. I don't know. But I do know it is a back. To keep your heart free. Think, he says, and then he says something which in some ways you could say is almost potentially completely the opposite. Relax! Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. You see, it's possible um, for someone um, on the, at the other extreme to become utterly obsessed with, with the worry about doing the wrong thing or doing something, something unhealthy. That's, that was some of the people were utterly obsessed with fear of, the, uh, of those idols. And, and, and uh, to, to them the Apostle says, no, just, just, just you know, there's not wider issues involved. Buy meat in the market, even if it might have been sacrificed to idols. Eat it. Don't ask questions. This is the, this is the Bible's um, uh, version of don't ask, don't tell that um, America's got in trouble for, for doing in the army. But here it is. And similarly, if you're invited to a meal, says the Apostle Paul, don't ask lots of questions. Just go. Enjoy the meal. Don't be obsessed by inadvertent sins that have no hold on you, in fact. It is impossible to live life totally pure. And sometimes we do something which subsequently we think probably wasn't the best thing for for us to do. Well, we can seek God's forgiveness and we can move on. We do not need to be obsessively fearful of sin. If we live life with a reasonable conscience, we do not need to keep digging and digging and digging to assure ourselves that whatever it is is absolutely pure. That is not a way to live free, says Paul. 
get a sense of proportion. Yes, if it's in danger of capturing your heart, flee, he says. But otherwise, you can relax. I mean, for instance, I'm very concerned about clothes made in sweatshops. I don't know whether you've kept up with it, but um, there are real injustices, terrible conditions that people produce our clothes uh, in. And I'm absolutely delighted that um, there are campaigners who are holding British manufacturers accountable for, for manufacturing clothes in a, in a reasonable way. But frankly, I just can't tell whether any of these clothes that I'm wearing were made in a sweatshop or not. I, I don't know. What should I do? Well, I'm, I'm not going to be utterly obsessive about it. If someone comes up to me and says, do you, want a, do you want this nice shirt, by the way, it was made in a sweatshop, I will definitely say, no, I don't want it. If a company gets exposed as using sweatshops, I will definitely avoid that, uh, avoid that company. But otherwise, I'm not going to ask deep and searching questions. You just cannot do that about absolutely everything. You will be paralysed. Relax, says Paul. You are free. God has covered your sins. You do not need to live obsessively righteously. And then he says something that um, we've seen as well in the past. Love. See, this is a big priority um, uh, throughout these chapters and here it is again. Yes, eat freely without asking too many questions, he says. But then uh, verse 28, But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. For your conscience sake, um, in part, but fundamentally for the sake of the man who told you. He might be led astray. He might be led to think that you think idolatry is okay. As Paul said back in chapter 8, love builds up. Love is the great aim of a free Christian. Actually not to love is the path to bondage and misery anyway. You know, our culture is just full of characters who portray that. You know, think of Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. Think of um, Gollum in Lord of the Rings, obsessed with the ring and himself. And on the list could go. It's pretty deeply built into our culture and we need to take it seriously. You find freedom and contentment and satisfaction not actually through pursuing narrow self-interest but pursuing the interest of all. And that may in the short term mean that there are some things, some short-term freedoms that we give up. But it is no long-term loss. Think, relax, love, he says. You apply those principles 
carefully, imaginatively to any situation that you are uh, facing and you will start to see the way to live as a mature, free person. Then he sums it all up by saying something else that brings it all together. Live life to the max. Three ways, he, three, three dimensions of that that he, uh, he speaks of in the last few verses that we need to just meditate on for a minute. First of all, he says, do everything, verse 31, for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, he says. Notice, notice he says, whatever you do, Massive freedom he's t- talking about here. He's, he's, he's not saying do only this, do only gospel work, for instance. He's saying you're massively free, Christian, to do all sorts of things that will bring God's glory. Enjoy a meal for the glory of God, he says. Have a drink for the glory of God. Go on holiday to the glory of God. Go to work for the glory of God. Spend time with friends to the glory of God. Go for a walk for the glory of God. Enjoy your hobbies for the glory of God. Every one of those things could become an idol. It could have a, have a, get a hold on your heart which would drag you away from God. But actually, rightly understood, every one of those things is a wonderful gift of God to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. You have enormous freedom. You know, yesterday, apart from uh, preparing this uh, sermon, which was hard labour for the glory of God, I dug the allotment, I walked the dog, I met about half a dozen friends on the street, I went to view some wonderful paintings uh, uh, for art weeks, I cooked uh, dinner for Richard and Catherine Weston, and then I watched Barcelona thrash Manchester United. What a day! (laughs) Is Wellesley recovered? (laughs) And I went to bed full of praise for God. Because he gave me all those things. And it was rich and glorious and wonderful. Not to have them as my idol, but to enjoy them as gifts from God. Whatever you do, he says, do it for the glory of God. And there will be potentially some painful choices to make as well for the glory of God. Perhaps you will, perhaps you will choose a less prestigious career path for the glory of God. Perhaps you will, you will live somewhere difficult for the glory of God. Perhaps you will lose a friend because you cannot be quiet about your faith. God's glory depends on it and they cannot cope with that. Perhaps you, will, perhaps you will even leave your precious career and, and, and devote your life to, to, to gospel ministry and there will be pain in that but it will be for the glory of God and there will be massive freedom in it too. Because you've grown up. You're not going to be like a little puppy wandering off onto the Ifley Road and getting knocked down. 
a person who has learned to take responsible decisions and live free. That's what the Apostle Paul is looking for. Second uh, um, dimension of that living life to the max is living for others. Verse 32 and 33. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And I just want you to notice one phrase in that and to bring it out for you clearly. I'm not seeking my own good, he says, but the good of many. And that does not mean that his own good is not served. Many includes him. He says, I'm not seeking my own good effectively in a narrow, restricted, Scrooge or Gollum-like way. I am seeking my good within the greater good of, 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 of the people that I'm amongst. He's made it plain, if, you remember, if you've been with us through these chapters, he's made it plain a number of times. Now, he's hungry for reward. He's hungry for the blessings of the gospel, as he puts it. He sacrifices something for his greater good and the greater good of those around him. There is no loss in living in love for others. And then the final picture brings it, to, brings it together. Follow my example, he says, as I follow the example of Christ. You see, there was no one more whole, no one more human, no one more free than Jesus. Oh yes. Sometimes he was troubled, tired, frustrated, and sad. And yet, through that, you see again and again, he is at peace, he is full of joy, he is utterly in control of his destiny. Here is a man who was not swayed by kings or money or the threats of Satan himself. Here is a man who was hated by some, but actually loved by thousands. Here was a man who took no um, prominent place in Israel and formerly in Israel's society and yet influenced Israel and then the world more than anyone else in history. Here is a man who gave up everything and yet frankly gained everything. Here is Jesus Christ. Here is a man who died on a cross. He loved people so much. Taking their sin for him, on his shoulders so that they could be forgiven and in consequence was raised and exalted and seated at the right hand of God and now rules over all things. And Paul says, I'm following that man. Let's follow him together. Now I... My great hope as we've studied these chapters is that we will be mature 
that we will learn to live as mature, free people. There are not simple, easy formulae in that world. But if we learn to think, if we appropriately just just relax a bit, we learn to love. And if we ask that question again and again and again, how can I most glorify God today in this thing? Then we will not go far wrong. And my fear, if I'm honest, is that there are people here who won't one way or another be able to hear that. I don't know why. And they will metaphorically wander up onto the Ifley Road and get knocked down. So I see it. They get captured by, in their hearts, by something. They, one way or another, wander away from Christ. And too late they discover that they've lost their freedom. Fight with all your might. Be free. It's worth it.